when we talk about regenerative, we always talk about harmony, balance, cycle, evolutionarily consistent realities. And, you know, the the ability to fit your food system to your population is a is a uniquely human thing versus fit your population to your to your food system or your environment. And it's a result of domination of nature such that you can synthetically curate an imbalance and that clearly has a limit welcome to where hope grows a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards ranchers and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is where hope grows. Hey everyone, this is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Today's episode is a special Mythbusters-style approach to addressing a generic narrative that even the most well-intended of people often default to regurgitating. This narrative commonly shows up in conversations around agriculture, and it rears its ugly head in two most common forms. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you have had conversations with friends, with family, maybe frenemies that have made such bold claims. Now, the first iteration of this bold claim goes something like this. We can't feed a growing population with a meat-based diet. The other maybe something like this. Regenerative is great and all, but... It's just not scalable, and therefore it's not a solution to feeding a growing population. End quote. Now, I'm fine with a mother vulture regurgitating a little morsel of predigested food into her chick's mouth, but I am fed up and frustrated with mother culture mindlessly regurgitating such claims as if they are irrefutable facts. In my perspective, I can typically get even the most skeptical people to acknowledge that eating meat is healthy. I can also make a monumental argument for the importance of animal agriculture. I've even been known to illuminate how a vegan diet is inherently destructive towards nature. However, any of these conversations I may have commonly come to a stalemate that our best path forward is not to eat less meat but intentionally actually consume more regenerative meat to pave a better path into the future. Now, the idea of reclaiming the legacy of meat is a battle cry here at Force of Nature, and this episode is created to thoughtfully understand how the only solution, the one path forward, is a global regenerative awakening. Today, I am joined by my lovely wife and co-founder of Force of Nature, Katie Collins, as well as the CEO and co-founder of Force of Nature, Robert Kasparis Sanson. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's address these questions head on. What is the best path forward when considering people and planet? And is eating regenerative meat a solution for feeding a global population? All this and more with Katie and Robbie. Enjoy. Okay, guys, I feel like 
we all have our own little pregame ritual to get in the zone to optimize our performance on this podcast, I'm going to let you in on my secret. I do methylated B12 vitamins. It's just like pure flow state. It always turns your teeth red. Yeah, but I'm operating. You can always tell when you're doing like it. 5% brain capacity to like 6%. It's game changer. <laughs> what is y'all's hack? Oh, shit. Um, to prepare for a podcast? Yeah. Or a big uh, interview or an athletic endeavor. Mm. These are Ra- all different things. Race poops. <laughs> Just shit your brains out. You did out. use the restroom right before we started I didn't this. You have a race poop, though. Get ahead of the poopy chills? Yeah. <laughs> did not. That's a good one. Okay, Robbie, what about you? What's your secret? Don't hold back. Oh, man. Share this with uh, me. I think, obviously, I I study and research and nerd out because I'm like, I don't want to say something wrong and I want to maximize the opportunity. Uh, but like right before this podcast, I was just pacing around the parking lot having meetings legitimately. So I can't say I did anything badass other than it's like in the forties and I spent the last hour walking, walking in circles. Jeez. So Robbie actually does hard work to prepare for something. He doesn't just try to hack his way into a performance. He's the most prepared man. Maybe there's something we should learn from that. The original biohack. Mm-hmm. Um, preparation. <laughs> preparation and hard work. <laughs> okay, guys. So we have gathered today for a very important conversation. And this is one that I've been nagging you guys to please come into the studio and record because I think it's going to be so legendary and fun. And it's one that we should have had months ago. But um, I think we all agree that there's an ongoing trend towards unbalanced communications, anti-meat let us call it hysteria in the media, Um, academic policies, government policy circles. I think it first started, at least when I look back in time, saturated fat was maybe public enemy number one in like the 60s. And then it was like cholesterol. And then meat was vilified as being terrible for the environment. And we've been able to understand and talk through and reason our way out of those moments of separation from nature and in our own hysterical mindsets. But now we're confronted with this underlying notion that meat is bad for the planet in the sense that we cannot grow a population. We cannot feed ourselves with meat, let alone regenerative meat. The question is, can we feed ourselves with a more virtuous system, period? And so with that being said, just one word answer, and then we're going to dive into this. Can you feed a population or whatever? If someone wants to say, can we save the planet? Can you feed the world better um, eating meat? Yes or no? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I polled a couple people and um, out of 10 people I asked, uh, all 10 said no. This is... Uh, that was a little bit of a bro math thing, but this is probably who one did of you pull? Just people. People <laughs> call people. them out, name them. We'll protect <laughs> for you. It's, it's HIPAA, HIPAA policy. I can't can't reveal that information. But my point is, I think we've all been in this um, industry long enough to have people constantly question. They say regenerative is wonderful. Eating meat has tremendous benefits for our human health, for the health of our ecosystem, whatever, whatever. But we can't scale this. This is unscalable to feed a growing population. And so this is what we're going to dive into. I think there's, there's a there's a couple prongs there too. I think 
I would expand on me. I think we got to talk about meat. We started this company, which sells meat to address this problem and many others. But I think we also say this isn't, you know, about plant-based or animal-based. This is like planet-based systems and solutions. And so I think we should talk about food at large and parts of this too. And can we feed a global population with regenerative systems, with plants and animals in harmony and thriving ecosystems producing our food? I just don't love the, the, the question. I don't love the question of like, can we feed a growing population? It's like, well, should we be feeding a growing population? Like, should? Is this? Well, let's get into that because that's a really provocative one. Um, first, before we get there, let's just talk about our current industrial state of agriculture and what that looks like. Specifically, I think I want to pay attention to row crops. Um, which they tend to get the pass, like this plant-based system. There's this narrative that that's better than an animal-based system. So what does that look like? And can that feed a growing population? So let's start with where we are. What's the reality of that? I think looking at Robbie because you know he's prepared. Robbie? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be so fun. We're going to go all over the place and zig and zag and go deep. And we're going to have to pull ourselves out of the weeds. Um, but yeah, like I, I think you know, we all do podcasts and we get, do other interviews and things. We get asked like, the question a lot. And I think I always like to push back on the premise of the question. It's like, can regenerative or meat, can you feed a growing population? And and I always want to remind everybody, like, that's a fair question to ask. But a more important question to ask is, can the current system feed a global population? Um, and what are the implications of that? And I, I think the definitive answer to that is no. The current system, we talk a lot about it, so I'll try not to be too redundant. I know we're all going to just like we could talk an hour on it. Um, but I think the current system exploded in, in, in productivity with the Green Revolution in, in response to um, a desire to improve yield, like really well-intentioned things. How do we create more food, make it more cost-effective? How do we respond to coming out of like World War II? about, you know, food shortages and, you know, some really terrible political policies in places like China and Russia that led to mass famine and starvation events. Um, and then, you know, the Green Revolution followed and we figured out how to make, you know, certain types of food in massive quantities really cheaply. Um, we'll, we'll expand on that in a second. But I think um, part of that reality has been it's like a reductionism, a simplification. It's like we make the, the food that we make is grains um, and cheap seed oils and, you know, cheap corn. Um, and that may be producing calories, but it's not producing nutrition. And as a result of um, the Green Revolution, that explosion of productivity plateaued and is plateauing right now. So like we can't expect the same productivity curve to continue. In fact, what we're seeing with desertification and with, you know, many of the other externalities we'll talk about is that the benefits are, are, are waning to that reality. Um, I think you've also replaced famine with nutrient deficiency. So like 2 billion people in the world, a quarter of the population are deficient in key nutrients. And so this system may be filling bellies, but it's depriving people of nutrition and, and health. It's destroying ecosystems. It's putting toxic chemicals in our food and water. We've talked about erosion and a lot of times and the loss of topsoil. So the actual food system, again, is not just productivity gains aren't there. We're actually going to see 
productivity declines and up to and including full loss of productivity at the rate we're destroying our food production systems with the status quo, which will cause massive food security, food stability issues. Um, the list goes on and on, on and on and on about why the current system is not a solution. I think there's things I'd love to dive into, like how did we get here? Um, and to, to Katie's point too, like should we be feeding a growing population? Is the population even growing? And if so, how and where and why? Again, all of this nuance matters. I know we love reductionism in the year 2023, but there's so much to unpack here. But I think just like I would want to start off and say, the current system's broken. We're racing towards a cliff. Slowing down does nothing. We need to course correct. What's the best alternative? I think that's an interesting point because if someone is saying... We need to eat less meat to do better for the planet or, or whatever, to feed a growing population. Then everything you just outlined, if we're consuming less of Mother Nature's most nourishing food source, then we have to eat something. We're not going to starve to death. So then we become more dependent on that alternative system, which you just described um, as kind of like that monoculture plant-based industrial system, which is predicated on inputs and controlling and dominating nature. And so that's an interesting perspective when you say like, you need to eat less meat, but you can eat more of this trash that I know is bad. And again, it's like the system is making people sick. It's making them less fertile and we're living shorter lives. So like, where, where does this head? I want to know, you know, when we say like, can we feed a growing population this way? I'm curious, like what country does the global population rely on so heavily for their food is it the U.S. day? Is it where, like, where is the global food supply coming from? Is it the United States? And why is it the, if so, is, is it the responsibility of the United States to be feeding the globe? There's a, yeah. I mean, I think that those are, those are totally fair and great questions. I think it, you know, you're looking at me like I have that answer. I figured, look at your notes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think as as I understand it, the answer is it comes from everywhere. It's a global, like it's a global food system. You know what I mean? Um, is there any talk, like I don't think food's all that different than the technology that we're speaking into, or 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 having our you know bags or, um, you know, the house goods and plastics and all, all the other. I mean, this is a we live in a global society with global supply chains, and I think what the U.S does is produce a an, an unbelievable amount of like gmo corn Green. and soy yeah um i think and wheat i think we've been sued in international markets for flooding those markets with those specific crops at a price of less than the cost of production um so i think that's like a, a big part of our contribution there are different parts of the world like you know going into this whole ukraine debacle you know i, I think and you and, and russia like they produce a lot of the materials necessary to make fertilizer that goes into feeding the world. So it's not even just where does the food come from, but where do the inputs come from and where do the fossil fuels come from? You know, if our current industrial system that's so efficient takes 10 calories of fossil fuels to produce one calorie of food, you know, where does the fossil fuels coming from? And then looking at all of that too, who has incentives to perpetuate that stuff? And so I think, Katie, your point, like not just where is food coming from today, but then we're talking about the the, the foundation of the question of feeding a growing population is future based. Like where are we headed and how do we feed it for the future? And it's like, well, the systems that are producing food today are degrading. So we're going to need some alternatives unless we improve those. And populations are rapidly changing. You're going to see, you know, at some point over the next 50 
years, we're going to begin to see population declines in North America, China, all of Europe, South America. Um, you know, population will continue to increase for a few more years or decades. Um, but the only place that population will continue to increase, you know, by the year 2100 is, is, is you know, the, the countries within, within Africa. And so, like, how does that, like, to your question, like, what, how does it work now is relevant, but also, like, what all is going to change and how does that shift to meet the target where we're headed? I don't, you know, I don't know. But to me, it's what's more important is the systems that we're degrading that are working at that, that are we're relying on at present were chosen and are the systems we're relying on at present because they are the best, they're the lowest hanging fruit. They're the best, most fertile, most appropriate for food production. Um, you know, if we have to start to evaluate alternatives for those, we're, we're going to second, third rate solutions. You know, I think the focus and energy should be, how do we improve? How do we re regenerate, restore, um, rebuild the systems that, that we've been relying on to, to support a population growth from back, you know, 2 billion people back in the fifties to what 8 billion people now. So 6 billion people. I think, I think that's come on the backs of those food systems. And then over the next 80 years, getting to 2100, they're expecting the population to grow only 2 billion people. So let's stay on the topic of feeding a growing population. And is that even our moral obligation to do so or our responsibility? Um, one of my favorite books that I ever read was, uh, it's called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. You remember that? You know where I'm going with this? I was, yes. It's, it was just so profound. My little like 20 year old mind read this and it just stuck with me since. But they're talking about population growth and food production. Um, but the industrial food production, which devastates mother nature and our natural resources. And the idea that the author brought forth was that if we continue to feed a growing population, if we continue to feed people on the planet that are starving, then we're only perpetuating the problem because then we're artificially inflating these communities where people probably shouldn't be living due to maybe they don't have the environment, maybe they don't have water. Maybe they don't have the nutrient resources, maybe the contamination, maybe the carrying capacity of the land is exceeded. And so by continuing to feed those populations, you're only perpetuating the ability of those populations to further reproduce. It literally sounds like you're talking about our bison herd right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another point. Like where in nature does that happen? What other species on the planet continues to reproduce disproportionately to what the resources can provide? Nowhere. What is that? What is the term people are talking about now? It's not the extinctionism. Is it extinctionism or extinctionism? <laughs> I think it's, I know when Taylor was saying that, I was like, oh no, he sounds like an extinctionist. No, I don't know what that even is, but I'm definitely not an extinctionist. No, I think, I think, but I think your point is, and we, we, in, in, in talking, not that I want to make your point for you, but I think what I'm hearing you say is, in talking, when we talk about regenerative, we always talk about harmony, balance, cycle, evolutionarily consistent realities. And, you know, the, the ability to fit your food system to your population is a, is a uniquely human thing versus fit your population to your, to your food system or your environment. And it's a result of domination of nature such that you can synthetically curate an imbalance. And that clearly has a limit. Um, and, it, and, and it has a limit for the globe. It has a limit for 
you know, continents and countries and, you know, subregions all the way down to Rome Ranch. Um, so I, I, yeah, we're not, I don't think we're talking extinctionism. I think we're just talking maybe, you know, biology. Okay. So let's, um, definitely not talking about extinctionism, whatever the <laughs> hell that is. I don't even know if that's a word. Um, I think it's a new word. But how, how, how do you, okay. So like, if we're looking at, uh, you know, the globe, not all land is created equal. Different regions have different contexts, different weather, different rain, different soil types. Um, I think there's something important to like that regional celebrating the regional abundance. Um, but how does that, what does that look on a global scale and how do you determine kind of like what agricultural systems are most conducive for certain areas? Oh, I got, so I think you like you do the best job of talking about this sometimes in tours and you're talking about trying to grow like bananas in the Arctic um, or trying to, you know, grow things that thrive in the cold and polar bears in Texas. Yeah, there you go. See, Taylor, <laughs> Taylor wins. Um, and, and so I think like, yeah, again, like if we're trying to dominate the system and force our will upon it, you start to do really unnatural things like that, where it makes more sense that systems would be regional. And I think that's like the best reality is like small, um, like um, closed loop systems, like all the inputs and all the outputs are staying within the system on a land base as much as possible. Again, we're in a global society now with global supply chains and um, we've disrupted those closed loops. And so I think there's a certain reality and a certain part of the solution has to be turning back some of those or reversing some of those um, inefficiencies and replacing them with more efficient closed loop, small food system, resilient solutions. I think the other, the other part of it, and maybe this is the question, Katie, that you were, you were asking too, is, um, you know, what is the current system and how is, how are people currently fed? And it's, it's not what you think. Like this idea of feeding the world, whether it's a growing world or just feeding the world is a totally Western thing. And it goes back to that, that green revolution that I was talking about. Um, the, the reality is today, 80% of the world's food comes from family farms and uh, three quarters of all farms on the planet are smaller than one hectare. Um, uh, which is like two and a half acres for Americans. Um, so most of humanity at today is eating food from small farms and small closed loop systems to some extent. Well, I don't want to say small closed loop systems. I'll say small farms. Um, and it's the developed nations that eat this industrially farmed food. And it's the developed nations that are getting sicker and they're losing their fertility and the populations actually aren't uh, going to be growing as much as they have been and should begin uh, are predicted to begin to decline. Um, and it's also, again, this idea of feeding the world is also predicated on the assumption that um, to feed a world, we have to feed them a Western diet on those seed oil crops and, and grain crops, which is, again, making people sick and leading to all these problems. And it's, a, a, you know, meat is not part of that consideration to your, to your point. Um, so I think that to me, it almost feels like it's straight out of the commodification playbook. Like, hey, Let's let's perpetuate the status quo. I'm part of the I'm uh, you know I'm one of these big food complexes that benefited from the green revolution. Like what's better than perpetuating the status quo is expanding it and creating a, a myth that we have this obligation that doesn't exist, um, but that gets a lot of momentum behind 
my enterprise or my, you know, my self promoting opportunity, becoming the cornerstone of, of feeding people that actually probably are just fine on their own and would prefer to continue to have their own sovereignty. And it just, it just feels like this idea, like what it, it, it's like, Hey, we have to feed the world. So by any means necessary, let's figure out how to simple, like create a few crops, make them really cheap, ultra processed food, and let that be the system that feeds the world. And that is to me like, wait a minute, hold on, hold on a second. This is, this is really fucked up. Somebody's manipulating our minds and getting in there and planting a seed as if it's a truth. And I think it's, it's a fallacy with an agenda. So if, so if the crop production is like there, these limited number of commodity crops that are the Western um, civilization is kind of growing to feed a, a global population, what, what percent of the earth's surface like how much of our land mass is actually conducive for growing that you know plant-based monoculture are we is that is that a land use question yeah like, i mean i'm just kind of curious we're we like hey this is how this is how we're thinking about feeding the population with these crops with these plants but how much of the earth's surface is actually going to be conducive for growing that the as i understand it a third of the earth's agriculture land is suitable for growing crops. Um, I think that's like one and a half billion acres. Not that that's a big number. I don't think that resonates with anybody, but um, the rest is not, 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 not capable um, of that third. Um, 60 to 70% of, of the ag land is only suitable for grazing. Um, and so, so let me, let me put it differently. 30, 30 over 30, around 30%, a little over 30% of the planet's surface is considered arable and only 3% of that is considered prime cropland. So again, you know, let's just say a, a third of the, the world is suitable for agriculture. The majority of that is suitable for grazing. A very, very, very small percentage of that is prime cropland that can be row cropped like we've historically done and thought of. So can so okay, so like uh if you're saying three percent basically of our usable agricultural land mass is conducive for plant-based monocultures, and then when we're saying we're we're gonna feed the world on three percent of the available land, that seems very uninclusive. Because what about like the Maasai Mara? I have Kenya or the, what are those handsome Argentinian cowboys called in Patagonia? Uh, I just want to say guanacos. I know, but I think that's the llama. <laughs> that's the wild llama. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So there's these massive amounts of global populations that uh, historically would not be feeding themselves because their land was not conducive for that plant-based or that single species of plant in an industrialized setting. Yet we're forcing the globe to eat what we can only produce on 3% of the land. Well, that, that's that, that's that substitution fallacy that like, Hey, we get rid of animals and we grow crops instead. And it's like, no, you can't grow crops where there's animals. <laughs> um, in fact, you can raise animals where you grow crops. And we would say should, because that's plants and animals in harmony, but it doesn't work in reverse. You can't take rangeland and 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 land that's um not suitable for row crops where you can grow cattle and just man, you know manifest the ability to, to grow crops on it 
um, I'm always kind of reminded by like, well, look at your, your regional context. Like what was, how did humans exist or sustain themselves on land? I don't know, even 150 years ago, 200 years ago, or before that. And that's like the regional wisdom, the productive capacity of that land. And so most of Texas, I think it's something like 70% of Texas is not conducive for, uh, what you would consider like crop production. And certainly where we are, um, in Fredericksburg, it's very semi-arid. And when I, when I look around, I'm like, okay, the Comanche Indians survived on hunting. The pioneers survived on harvesting wild game and a little bit of foraging. And so the fact that there's people that are planting monocultures of row crops now in, in our community, that's certainly not what the architecture of nature wants to support, but it's perpetuated by government subsidies. So people continue to farm, even though they're not successfully harvesting anything. And then, and then one quick story to follow up on that. Katie and I saw this deer that was stuck in a fence like four or five years ago. And we, we stopped and we had some fence, some, some cutter, some like, uh, some pliers in the truck and we cut this deer loose, but it was in bad shape. And it was hanging upside down. By its leg that was wrapped around the barbed wire. It was wild. Probably for like two or three nights. Yeah. I mean, horrible. This thing was like on its last leg, like figuratively, literally it was going to die. So we cut it free. This deer gets up to run away, instantly collapses when it puts weight on that leg, tries again, collapses. You know, like we're just watching this thing. Its leg is dangling. The bone is absolutely broken. It's just like absolutely limp and flopping in the air. And um, turns out, you know, six months later, that deer lost its leg. Now it has a stump, but it is thriving. We, I saw it last night driving into the ranch. I mean, this, this deer has had multiple fawns. It's reproduced. It's healthy. It has three legs. So I'm like, man, that is a resilient animal. That animal that is adapted to fit in the context of this region. That's so hard is so impressive. And so when I like think about that versus, okay, well, what would happen if I, if I planted kale in my yard? <laughs> it's like if it didn't rain for a week, the kale would die. If it hailed, the kale would die. If we got, if we got like a balloon more than in the garden. Yes. If that hungry deer with three legs wanted to snack, that kale would die. And so it's just wild to me that we're even having this conversation when it's so abundantly clear that our eco region is not conducive to feeding people kale. Um, and I'm just saying kale, but it could be any of your given monoculture plant based commodity crops. I think what's also interesting in that to that point is about what's about what's appropriate and what's possible. And we talked about how much land is available for agriculture and what what aspects of it are suitable. What we didn't mention is that of that amount, a ton of it is degraded. Like a third of it is degraded. Um, and I think you know by some estimates. Um, there's a there's a there's an you know a huge chunk that's you know beyond repair, a, ma a material chunk and and you know you're talking about Texas and and, and the U S and, and and where food comes from and so on and I mentioned earlier how this dis the disruptions that we've caused and damage we've done to our system is compromising the ability for the current system to produce food in the future. In the U S alone, there's 3,100 counties and in the last two years consecutively. 2000 counties have declared disasters for drought. So it's like, again, these food systems are degraded and degrading further rapidly. We're losing topsoil, all, all the rest of this stuff. And so like, what is, 
we talk about what is theoretically possible historically, that changes in the present and going forward because the system becomes less and less capable of even doing what it once was able to. Um, and we and we get fewer and fewer options available to us unless we begin to try to heal those systems. And so Texas is a good example. I mean, I think every county, I'd have to go back and look, but I think almost every county in Texas was declared a disaster area for drought the last two years. And the numbers prior to the last two years aren't really any better. Yeah. The way I would describe that, and this is probably illegal, so don't do this, especially if you live in the city, but um, I challenge you to maybe metaphorically shoot a bullet into the air. Don't actually shoot a bullet into the air. Watch that sucker go high up in the atmosphere and then eventually hit its peak height and then it's going to drop. And it's just going to randomly drop. You're not controlling where it's going to drop, but it's going to hit somewhere in, in your area, probably within a mile radius. And where that hits, go out and find that spiritual bullet that's not real and draw a, a one by one, uh, like kind of like a square foot of that land. And I, I guarantee you it's going to be degraded to Robbie's point, potentially even like 90% bare soil. And so that's like the reality of what global land looks like. Certainly grasslands have probably been hit the hardest. Um, and so as far as, yeah, I mean, even right there, that being said, how do we feed a glowing population? Well, hmm. How about instead of having 90% bare soil, we have 50% bare soil, which how long did it take us to get or how about 0%? How about 0%? 50 sounds pretty Is that pathetic. doable? Some people say that's not doable. 0%? Yeah. Who said that? I don't know. Haters. Robbie, do you have a stat on that? What about, what? Have, yeah, what have you seen? I mean, I don't want to be like, I know I exaggerate, but our ranch was very similar. 90% plus bare soil seven years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, that's why I was saying I want to get a Google image. Mm. I want some some thermal LIDAR. Li, LIDAR. I want to get some LIDAR on the ranch. But I mean, if we're talking about global systems, I guess your whole point is that this is happening globally. Because one question that I had, I don't know why I'm looking at Robbie. One question, <laughs> one question I had for Robbie is like, are there any systems, food systems in the world that aren't broken aside from regeneratively managed properties? Um, it's easy to say yes to that, but it's hard to. But I mean, like, can, can, can we pin? Okay, so Taylor and I on the drive here this morning, we were talking about like the Earth as the globe. I don't know why I'm doing this. Some people don't think it's this shape. Some people. Some people think like it's this. like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just gonna do it both ways. So the globe. 2D or 3D. Uh, I'm doing it both. Okay. Well, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a globe if it was a sheet of paper. I'm inclusive to all. You're not being inclusive by saying thought. by saying globe. Yeah, right. Okay, so the world is that a shape? <laughs> I think um, the globe works. I think we'll stick with the globe. Okay, so so globally, if we have a third of the globe is degraded, probably. Um, Seventy percent yeah. of the dry regions are degraded. Okay, which is where a lot of food comes from. Which is where a lot of the food comes from. What we, what we were talking about in the car this morning is if the world is a a living, breathing system, and we we focus a lot of our attention on the United States and like Fredericksburg in particular. Like, you know, like we care about our own eco regions, but you know, our eco region is impacted by what's happening in. The Amazon rainforest, for instance. And so we we will acknowledge that global climate is impacted by regional systems. <sighs> Where am I going with this? 
Quantum physics? No. <laughs> no. The butterfly effect? AI? Hey, y'all. No, that's really what you're talking about. I mean, the interconnectedness. The, of the interconnectedness of it all. Um, I don't know what my question was. Um, okay. Sorry. It'll come back to It'll you. It'll come can, back to you. You can interrupt. Well, I think... I think the one like while we're on while we're on the subject, I think going back to oh go ahead. It came to me. Okay, so we we have a global system. We're all interconnected. Da 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 da. So if we aren't addressing the global system, if we are only focusing on regenerating our local ecosystems, but not at a global scale, aren't we sort of doing ourselves a disservice by not acknowledging that this regenerative system, this regenerative process, has to happen globally? Yeah. And in order for it to happen globally, we have to support the global efforts. Before Robbie gives a really smart answer. Okay. I think what, what, when I hear you say that, I envision like if, if a human being is sick, God forbid you go to a doctor, but if you go to a, a doctor, no offense, doctors. no offense, there's different types of doctors. If you go to a shaman, uh, the shaman, the doctor, if they're good, they're going to treat you as a whole organism. Right. You're not going to show up and say, my heart hurts. And they're going to say, all right, well, let's do like all these cardiac tests. You know, hopefully a good doctor will like look at you holistically. So that's what you're saying with the earth. Yes. We need to look and treat planet earth holistically. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'd, yeah. I mean, and I think trans relatable for most listeners, I think our, our, our atmospheric carbon issue isn't unique to Gillespie County. Right. Um, and you know, issues related to droughts and flood and toxins and waterways and oceans and losing 1% of insect species every year. And all of these things affect all of us. And so, yeah, this is a hundred percent a global, these are global crises driven by global practices and impacts that will require global solutions and collaborations. I mean, and that's a huge part of the reason why with force of nature, you know, you look at what our founding principles have been and it's you know create a global regenerative supply network support directly or indirectly the conversion of a billion acres of agriculture land to regenerative there's not a billion acres of agriculture land in the US um, there's a heck of a lot of agriculture that the US relies on internationally and that international markets rely on also internationally and so it's you know how do we support correcting these challenges at scale and it's the scale's global. Is that? Yeah, that's totally what I was getting at. I just think it's really interesting when people, when we think about our food system and um, the food that we consume, a lot of people assume that a lot of the food that they're consuming is coming from the United States or the, the truth is, I feel like people don't really care where their food comes from. Um, they don't really care where anything comes from. Mm. Some people think that local is better than anything else. That is true. There is a local movement. That is true. But I mean, when you dive into like, is local better? I'm like, I can't help but think of a guy that talked at our conference last year. And I remember his like main point was like, you support local above all else. And so if that means that you go and support your conventional farmer who's spraying glyphosate on his field, you go support that guy and you eventually get him to transition. And I'm like, wait, so you're going to support the glyphosate world and you're going to consume herbicides and pesticides and these things in order to support a local system as opposed to supporting like 
a regenerative system, maybe in the next state or maybe in the next country. It's just like, it's very odd. Yeah, well, all, all else remaining equal, for sure. But that's reductionist. All else doesn't remain equal. Right. So, and, and by the way, like we're not perfect and nobody's perfect. And so, I mean, I think it comes down to the consumer and their values. So it's, which, you know, I, I think it's like for you to decide. Um, you know, when we, we talk about, it's like, we're not anti-local, like you more than a lot of people I know are major supporters of local and Keystone in your small community in, 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 a, in a number of ways. Meanwhile, again, we have stuff in our pockets from, from, from Asia with materials mined in Africa and all the, all the rest of the stuff that we, that we know, um, is a, is a reality. And so, you know, and we, and we even say like force of nature is third best place to get me like go hunt it, suffer, struggle, form a relationship, next best place, find a regenerative farm in your community, support them to the extent you're able. And then, you know, next best place at a scale solution. But yeah, like I, I also think like, just to be really clear on what you said and what I was saying, I do think all this remaining local is better. Just understand that like there's nuance there and, and, and go and meet them and explore them. Like just don't expect perfection of them and support them as best you can to the extent it aligns with your values. And if it just simply doesn't align with your values, then there may be something on a slightly larger region. And what, what is local anyway? Is it a zip code? Is it a county? Is it a state? Is it a region? Is it a country? Is it a continent? Um, so again, I just like, I think the nuance, the devil's in the details there and the nuance matters. And I'm suddenly curious, um, whose clothing is regenerative? No. Mine, you guys. <clears throat> Was it locally Why? sourced? No. Is there any locally sourced regenerative no. shirts you can buy in Texas? There's actually not. Mine's a local company, but it's Is not it regenerative. regenerative. <laughs> well, mine too. Mine's degenerative. <laughs> De degenerative. We might be degener degenerating together. Well, you have long sleeves, so you're more degenerative than oh, I am. Shit. <laughs> Sorry, Robbie. Podcast over. Cut off your sleeves immediately. No, but I mean, like again, like we're all we're super conscious consumers, and clearly, Katie just pulled out another great example of how it's, it's really difficult to do. And so I think for us to, to tell people what to think and feel and how to purchase based on our values and, and ideas and beliefs is, is inappropriate. I think we can share what our values and ideas and beliefs are and offer encouragement and, and transparency. But to say that local is better in every instance is bullshit. To say that local isn't better in many instances is also bullshit, you know? And, I, and sorry, you did trigger me. Trigger warning. <clears throat> when you said that you don't think most people care, I disagree with that. I think I think most people for sure care. I think, you know, even if you look at testing data, which I know is your favorite sort of data to look at, Love consumer research. research. Yep. Um, I think over 70% of consumers say they care about something. The real question is like, how to what extent are they willing to put forth effort to do something about yeah, it? Yeah, like, I, well, exactly. They might care, but then do they actually, does that translate to a, a purchase or a decision or a compromise or a sacrifice, com a compromise or sacrifice. Um, and, and so I think like that's where brands and businesses with that are driven by integrity come into play. And it's like, and it goes back to, to my, my point, I think it's like, Hey, let's just try to create awareness to these issues and give them access to an opportunity to that may be more approachable or more accessible to them to do something about it. Understanding that, you know, I don't want to call people, I don't want to say they don't care. And I don't want to call them lazy. Like it really is hard, you know? There's probably a lot of things we could call each other out for, for being lazy when it comes to how much time and energy are you currently putting into that thing, which is technically relevant, but like we're focused on the things that we're focused on and life's hard and whatever. I don't want to make too many excuses for people, but um, 
you know, let's try to make it easier for him and, and give, and give some grace. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the farmer's markets are a scene and depending on your city or your community, <clears throat> they'll have different hype levels. Some farmers markets, people are like, these farmers are selling out in 10 minutes from when it opens. And then some people are just going there to socialize and like at our farmer's get market. It's yeah. the worst. <clears throat> but I think, I think local is for sure something that resonates with people, but there's definitely some, some compromises people are making, or maybe they're not looking at their consumptive patterns holistically. And again, nuance, right? Like, is it weird when you go to a market and you find like tropical fruit in your farmer's market or you find people that like... Hey, where? How, tell me the story of this animal. Did you raise it? How much land do you have? Whatever. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't raise this one, and so on. So it's like again, not not to demonize or call anybody out, but like nuance, people. You know what triggers it doesn't me? Matter. You know what triggers me with Katie's local statement is that because Robbie got to talk about how he was offended. Um, Victim is that bison. According to the USDA, you know, like all these like food safety organizations that. Uh, kind of regulate meat. They consider bison an exotic species. It's I labeled know. as exotic. That species. is offensive. Yeah, and it's the OG. It's the OG local. I'm like, if you really want to eat local, eat a freaking bison because beef cows are not indigenous to North America. It is, bison sheep, is the only goats. native species that you will find <laughs> in the grocery store. So that's Let's how just you be clear. That's how you go ultra local, loco local. <laughs> um. Okay. Let's get back on track. Sorry. Hang so, on. <laughs> Wait, no, uh, let's do get back on track, but I'm going to go all the way back uh, to where we tangented off from. And, and and you're talking about where food comes from and the, the abilities of it and the international scale of it. But like one thing to point out in these degraded systems and in the in current industrial system is that like when we've gone reductionist with our food production, we've like the United States that produce a few grain type crops. We've stopped producing a bunch of other things. Um, I think you got you started to get into land healing and like stocking rates going up or you know the nutrition of the soil and the fertility of the soil improving so yields improving like those things are those things are true um what's what is also true is in regenerative systems you tend to stack revenue or enterprises or products so you're not just producing gmo corn and maybe throw in a, a crop of gmo soy in there but you're producing region appropriate land appropriate food maybe you go from one or two revenue streams to five to ten revenue streams and 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 plants and animals included in that and so you actually what you see the reality that you see globally is these small farms outproduce both in calories and nutrition large farms so i think you were trying to talk about like we talked about what how much land is available the earth isn't growing we talked about that it's degrading we talked about that it needs to improve but not only do you improve as you improve it you get more of the same but you get incremental on top of that by being able to add more things into it again that are appropriate for that region and and, and the last thing i'll say on this global thing is like i'm not going to be the person that tells people from alaska they're not allowed to have bananas you know um, just simply because it doesn't grow in their region or people that like Australian wine, that they can't have that here just because it comes from a different region. Excellent point. Mm-hmm. Or chocolate. Everybody likes chocolate. I mean, I would... Chocolate doesn't at, grow here. At the grocery store the other day, I was taking pictures of the origin of all of the produce that I was buying, just so I could show it to you today, Robbie. And I bought apples from New Zealand. What? 
Yeah. I mean, and like, I mean, usually I don't look at country of origin when I'm like buying my produce at natural grocers. You do, but, get, you do look at how patriotic sounding the apple name is, though. That is true. For those that, of the, been, you should check it out. Liberty least, apples or There's what? Liberty, there's Glory. <laughs> there's been some good ones recently. Um, anyway. Okay, so we, we recognize that the current prevailing food system is destructive. We cannot continue at the trajectory we're moving towards. Robbie said racing off cliff. Um, so what are the other alternatives? Like what, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of focus around this. How are we going to feed a growing population? How are we going to continue to produce food in a way that we're not, um, killing the earth, et cetera, et cetera. What, what are, what are some of the solutions that are being proposed? And let's go like all the way, just insane asylum, crazy people talk to, uh, to like some real solutions, maybe in that order. I mean... What's your craziest thing? Eating bugs? I feel like, I mean, I wrote down Bill Gates when you said that, (laughs) because you have to bring Bill Gates up in every podcast that you do. Um, But I feel like Bill Gates is on the the forefront of this movement and controlling our food supply system. Um, I mean, he is the largest farmland owner in the United States now. More more than China? Uh, I hope so. (laughs) Because at least he's American. Um. So I would say, I know that he's, you know, producing monocrops for his fake meat products and beyond. So that's number one. So is that a solution though? For well, him. But is that a solution for the earth, for the population, for well, the betterment not. of humanity? I mean, like, these are such leading questions. Of course not. Well, I mean, explain yourself because some people are going to be like, hell yeah. Thank you, Bill Gates. Thanks, you Bill. man. Hey, William. Put one of those Beyond Meat Impossible Burgers right and just inject it in the sludge form. Maybe, maybe can we back up artery. one step and, and and lay out a few solutions and then and then just rip them apart yeah. into tiny shreds and then we can get to raw regenerative as best. Yeah, let's put a little, little, yep, absolutely. But And I think Katie's point touches on a few of them, right? I think, I think a lot of the solutions that get talked about loudly and are heard most are what I would consider to be doubling down on the status quo or perpetuating the status quo. So I think you hear, again, like feeding growing population by any means necessary. Oh, industrial agriculture. Let's do more of this. Let's ignore the challenges and the consequences and let's just push harder. Let's rebrand it. Yeah. Rebrand it as plant-based. Or then further, yeah, let's let's add a layer of complexity and inefficiency and cost and maybe wealth redistribution and, and relabel it as plant-based or lab based technology solution. I think there are, you know, on a, on a spectrum, if those are on the far left, you start to get more towards the center, but still to the, to the, you know, left of where I would say is ideal is things that are like improvements to the status quo, but are still reliant on it. You know? So I think there's actually, and if you talk about like, Hey, cold Turkey changes don't work, we might get into that. Um, some of these things become interesting in building a bridge and spanning and, and spanning a transition period. But, you know, there's some things coming out tech that are technology that are, hey, when we go spray and, you know, instead of spraying indiscriminately all of the sides, um, can we target only using vision and cameras and AI and all of this stuff like only weeds and we can reduce application of herbicides to like 10 percent of what they were and run off of those herbicides to a fraction of that because it's targeted on the leaf of a, of a thing. Okay. Well, there's, you know, have you seen the lasers lasers to zap them? Yes. 
Yeah. That shit yeah, is nuts. Super, super Star Wars stuff. Like, that is like, yeah, let's go put that on the list for the insane asylum shit. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, I don't know that I'm hearing. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, uh, eliminate eating meat is, is certainly on the insane asylum side of like what you sure. talk about for solving to feed a growing population. And then like Taylor said, I think maybe bugs mm. fall in there. I mean, a lot of the world eats bugs. So I don't. It's true. I'm that's not. not uh, I'm not uh, hating on eating bugs per se. I'm hating on the industrialization of eating bugs. Yeah, it's I the mean, same it's as chicken. A feedlot. It's exactly. It's a feedlot for an insect. I have a whole section on here on you don't you can't feed a growing population on chicken. Mm-hmm. We can, <laughs> but but without without jumping ahead, like you definitely can't do it with bugs, right? Like you can't. That would be an unnatural. Force our will, dominate, create imbalance in a system to do something that the system wasn't designed for. Again, humans didn't evolve chasing herds of grasshoppers to sustain themselves. I think there's a there's a role in it, and there's a reality of it, and it's and it's appropriate in certain instances, but not to feed the population. That's I the liked the picture that you painted, though, that it was actually happening outside. These things happen in warehouses and huge vats, of, and these grasshoppers never see the light of day. All and synthetic. It's again, it's, it's chicken. chicken. It's chicken. <laughs> yeah, synthetic. You know, modified. Probably not. Really, wouldn't survive on their own in nature. Input driven. Inputs coming from monocrop agriculture. Like yeah. it's just the exact. It's lipstick on a pig. It's rinse and repeat. It's deception and misleading. suffering of animals. Yeah, sentient beings being tortured. Absolutely, ethical issues. I always feel like when Scout puts bugs in a cup. For studying purposes, that it's also animal mistreatment. Yeah. But anyway. I think- Well, if you were a a vegan, you wouldn't care about that because the bugs don't matter in your calculus. That's true. I I could see myself eating bugs if I was starving. Of course. But here's the thing. If you eat a grasshopper and you don't roast it first, you're going to get sick. Bye-bye. Yeah. That's like its defense mechanism. Did you know that? You have to cook it, crisp it up over an open fire. This feels like an ad. Yep. There's there there there's not a a I would love to eat. I whenever I have an option to eat bugs, I eat the bugs. I think it's fun and exciting and adventurous, but I'm not I'm not going to convert my food system and suggest that we should all be eating them at scale because that is psychotic. <laughs> okay. So, so where are we on So this? do we have a good solution because I feel like these are the okay, so you're kind of like touching on perpetuating the existing system, rebranding it maybe for a little bit better, dist- redistribution of wealth. Using technology, doubling down on this like idea that somehow human ingenuity and creativity is greater than Mother Nature's capacity for creating a complex system, which is just mental disorder in itself. And then uh, what, like eating bugs, you know, that's not going to work. So like what is what's like these options suck. Well, yeah, yeah, and, and like fail. everything, everything I, I laid out to your point. And I, I said it's perpetuation of the status quo, like plant-based, still relies on, you know, monocrop, row crop. All the things we've laid out as problems with the industrial system really are still represented in that, plus new problems, energy efficiency, um, ultra process, human health, et cetera, probably get worse. Same with the bugs. We'll throw chicken in there um, and, and, and everything else, right? That's why I say... Like slowing right where if we're heading towards a cliff, slowing down doesn't do us a whole lot of good. Um, and we could dive into and, and, and rip all of those things apart. But I just feel like it's easier just to say they all rely on the system that we've 
already explained is is screwed up and um and it turns out that the solution which is where i think we're we're trying to get to um to those harms and damage <clears throat> caused by that system is offered by the regenerative system so not only does the regenerative system feed us better than the existing one but it actually heals all those harms and then creates other abundant positive externality so it improves the functions of ecosystems it improves habitat and diversity and and all of the cycles of nature from the water cycle to energy cycle nutrient cycle all the community dynamics it creates more nutrition in our food it it introduces less toxic chemicals and, and unnatural things it works within balance within within the system and doesn't you know dominate to the extent that the current industrial system does it builds resiliency security and stability and it you know it offers hope and the way we always explain that is it replaces a vicious system with a virtuous one like the industrial system is vicious it veils the truth and it produces an abundance of negative externalities that we're calling global crises the regenerative systems also has externalities but they're all positive they are all worthy of celebration and we've heard this is where we this is why we're doing this podcast because we chest bump high five you know celebrate all everything you're talking about but then when you when you're talking to someone and they're hearing this for the first time they're like i want to be so excited however you you, it's not scalable. You can't feed a growing population. And so that's, it goes back to this. And so I'm, I'm in alignment with you. I think this is the best opportunity for a system to co-create with mother nature. One that has all these tangential benefits, creating this virtuous cycle, but for people that aren't even maybe familiar with what a regenerative system looks like. So specifically regenerative agriculture, can you just kind of like paint a picture and also, how do animals fit into that equation? Who wants to take that one? Because they'll be more concise than me. Oh. That's so big. Well, why don't you take it, Tay? Katie's drawing snakes. I can't take I my own I was about question. to draw a mouse. Yeah, it's not snakes if it's a mouse, Taylor. It's, a, it's not even a reptile. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, go ahead. No, I mean, yeah, just for people that are like, well, what the hell? Like, what is this? awesome regenerative system look like on the ground? Uh, what are like some of the components involved in this and how do animals play a part? It's, I just, there's so, I, it's I could, so it's big. Like, I mean, you and, you and I spoke for like an hour and 20 minutes on just the six principles of regenerative, regenerative agriculture. And I think those six principles are a part of it. And, and there's so many more things. Um, but I think like, and it's maybe in its simplest form right like instead of trying to work against the will of nature and dominate it you're trying to work within you're trying to take its wisdom and blueprints and, and leverage that for food production um it's an imperfect imitation but it is it is one that is is time tested and proven over billions of years of, of of evolution and i think some of the ways that you would see that and again none of this is absolute and it's it's context based but you know, a system that requires massive external inputs, whether that be fertilizer, herbicide, fungicide, pesticide, petroleum, um, that creates a lot of 
that, that produces a product that isn't even in remotely native or consistent with something that would be native in a region like our, our plant-based systems that requires disruption mechanically through tilling and um, or, or leveling rainforests or leveling forests or damming rivers. Um, you know, that, 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 that is like the backbone of the current industrial system. And I would even go as far as to say the current industrial system has <clears throat> removed labor and people and human and the soul from that equation, the soul of food production and replaced it with big business. Again, like we always say, you know, we traded out agriculture for agribusiness. That was, that's profit centric. And the result has been losing the things that the humans care about the most. Is that short and simple enough to take a five hour long conversation into two minutes? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm sure this will provoke something from you guys, but like the way that I think about animals is fitting into this. I'm going to just like look back 200, 300 years ago to the context of North America. And it's like what what some of the early European explorers saw, witnessed what a lot of the indigenous tribes experienced was the American Serengeti. So like an abundance beyond anything that we could ever comprehend today. I mean, we're talking like 40 million bison, 20 million pronghorn, 20 million elk, like millions of wild horses, um, hundreds of thousands of wolves, you know, hundreds of thousands of grizzly bears, all co-creating something that you would liken to like the African Serengeti, but potentially more diverse, more abundant and more beautiful. And so like when you look back at how the architecture of nature existed, these animals, they weren't just there extracting from the land. It was that symbiotic relationship with our landscape. You know, Robbie, you talk about keystone species with bison, and a lot of these are keystone species in that, which their presence on the landscape lifted up, elevated the entire energetic state of that landmass. You know, like the the whole, the sum of the whole is greater than the the unique parts. And so I just feel it's crazy that we recognize that these animals, you know, like we vilified them for so long. However, like, isn't that just like such an insult to a creator or this entity that designed these perfect regenerative beings beyond anything that humans could ever fathom or come up with or try to reproduce with technology. So we have these regenerative beings and now we're just telling everyone they're bad for your health or they're bad for the land or we shouldn't be eating them. That's just absolutely separation of human to nature, in my opinion. For uh, sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I Amen, brother. And that's only the last 10,000 years that you just highlighted. You know, you go back prior to that and it's the same thing with different different names and animals, but it's always animals. Again, we always you know, we always say like nowhere in nature does a monoculture exist. It's always plants and animals. It's always har bugs, harmony, soil. Um all of these things sustaining life and it's only in since the agriculture revolution and since the green revolution that we have um, so much of the earth's surface desertified and, 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 and existing in a monoculture of one species where so much energy and effort is put into nuking any other form of life and calling it a pest or a weed or any other, you know, derogatory term towards biology that's there to support a healthy system.
So I guess the biggest criticism specifically to animals, you know, people are going to listen to this. And I think our audience is for sure more enlightened, Katie um, pointed out. But if someone, you know, forwards this to their um, to their 70 year old or no offense to a 70 year old like a parent, a less progressive human being who is more just drinking in the narrative of mainstream media saying animals are terrible and we need to eat more sludge. They're going to they're going to get this. It's going to like resonate somehow cellularly with them. I think that it's going to like at least the very minimum stimulate some curiosity, but they're they're going to go to this like this default mode where, you know, they're going to say like, well, what about greenhouse gas emissions and livestock? Yeah. I mean, I feel like this entire conversation is focused around monocrop production and we haven't really discussed the impact of feedlots. And I mean, like we are not advocating for feedlots for sure. I think that the, all the bad rap that livestock get is from studies around feedlot production systems, which is just a part of the industrial food production system. Um, you know, like all the methane production research comes out of feedlots and and it neglects to look at an ecosystem that's actually fully functioning where you have methanotrophic bacteria that consumes the methane and puts it back into the soil. Um, and so there's just like, there's so much there. I don't know where you want to touch on. I mean, how about should we be concerned about the greenhouse gas emission of animals? No. Absolutely not. Well, otherwise, I think every other mainstream media outlet disagrees with that. So explain your position, sir and ma'am. Ma'am. Go ahead. I think I think there's a there's there's a number of myths. I think the most popular one is 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 carbon. And in this case, with with meat, you're talking about enteric emissions or you know belching methane. It's a it's a byproduct of decomposition, which happens in the rumen of these ruminants, like the bison and the pronghorn and the elk and the whitetail and those those animals that you just kind of laid out um, uh, also have been producing through the millennia, um, and the land and the environment and the world has evolved to handle. Um, I think. For clarification, you know, the greenhouse gases that get talked about the most, carbon dioxide, methane, and and I think nitrous oxide, um, you hear more about carbon dioxide and methane. Carbon dioxide um, exists in the atmosphere for about a thousand years for all intents and purposes, and methane exists in the atmosphere for about 10, one zero, 10 years. Um, methane's way worse than carbon dioxide, to be clear. Um, from a greenhouse gas, from a from from that, that the, the challenge that greenhouse gases cause perspective, but you got to look at methane from animals as actually part of again, like we just said, a natural process, biogenic methane. Um, meaning it's been around forever. It's part of the system. It has been as long as there are a consistent number of ruminants on the earth. It means there's a consistent amount of methane going up, a consistent amount of methane coming down, and it's in a state of homeostasis, and it's not a problem. In fact, it is a necessary reality and part of the part of the balance. Um, so, like reductionist thinking says, "Oh my gosh, methane's worse than carbon dioxide. Cows are terrible because they burp." And it's like, well, that's you're you're missing all of the points I just made. That it doesn't last as long. That the population of animals on the planet is consistent with what it's always been. That it's not. And in fact, there is methane increasing as a portion of the atmosphere. And the number one source of that 
is rice farming. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I did not know such things. The next biggest source of it is, um, I believe, um, waste, like dispose, like um, what am I? What like trash waste? Human human waste, which ironically uh, is the breakdown of food, which human waste is about twenty percent food. So we should probably talk about at some point the fact that. We throw away almost as much food as we consume when it comes to feeding the world. But yeah, you know, methane, if methane is an issue, it's not because of cows. I just looked something up to, to, I guess, get a a more holistic picture of greenhouse gas emissions, methane, et cetera, et cetera. And says like, uh, here we go, the EPA... Um, says that livestock only represent 3.9% of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. 2% globally. Yes. The number one, this shouldn't be a surprise. I'm actually going to pop quiz y'all. The number one sector, it's not food related. I'll give you that clue that contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. What do you think it would be? Transportation. Travel. I'll take both of those. Yes. (laughs) 28.5%. But there's a second Next one, 28.4%. Kind of related to travel. Uh, burning of fossils? Electricity oh. production, which, yeah, could be yeah, burning which of fossils. Which I guess could be that. It could be powering your Prius. Could be powering your Prius. So, yeah, like, why are we focusing so hard on agriculture, specifically animal-based agriculture? But not making everyday life choices that are actually significantly more impactful that's demented mm-hmm. well and and again that that two percent globally or three and a half percent domestically is still biogenic methane it's coming down as fast it's it's homeostasis it's not incremental it's not causing incremental harm to the system in fact it's been around longer than we have um <clears throat> and i and i had a second point there darn it uh oh and then just a reminder that a third of the legacy load of the carbon in the atmosphere which is incremental has come from tilling the ground, oxidizing carbon-based life and, and putting gas into the environment, which does go back to those plant-based systems, not the animal-based systems. Although a significant portion of plant-based agriculture goes to feeding animals and feedlots. Um, it's not as much as you think, but it's a, it's a significant portion, which is why we don't support the feedlot model or grain feeding or supplementation of animals. All right, so I don't want to get us down what has been dubbed the carbon tunnel vision. This like reductionist idea that we should only be focusing on carbon. There's other criticisms with meat production. I don't want to spend too much time on it. This is about feeding a growing population, but I think this is something we need to cover because this is this is what the skeptics are going to come back with when we're having this conversation. So maybe Robbie, could you just quickly kind of talk through some of those um misconceptions or actually I would say that it's more pernicious than a misconception. I would say some of the lies that we were being told uh, about meat production. Yeah. I think we, I mean, we could talk forever on all these. We went a little deeper into emissions, but you know, I think like check the box, the emission issues on cattle is bullshit. We talked about this myth or lie that, Oh, you know, not only do they cause all these problems, we should just stop raising animals and raise and, and grow Plants where animals are currently, like that's bullshit, not possible. We already went through that. Hold on. We got to stop calling it bullshit because bullshit's really. Oh, yeah. The, it's super nourishing. Manure from a bull is badass. Yeah. So what could we call it? 
fucking evil lies. It's an evil lie. It's a it's an evil lie. Okay, fair enough. <clears throat> um, I think it's called called a bear claw. Yeah. So cattle don't compete you know, for. Remember bear claws? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was that the gas station? Yeah, gas station bear claw, not a real bear claw. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I think the other one that you you hear a lot, and there's been some provocative articles, like it takes an Olympic pool of water to make a hamburger. I don't know what they are. I made that up. It's some fabricated, sensational bullshit like that. But water, it takes a lot of water to... Oh, sorry. Fabricated bear claw. Um, You know, again, that one's about as much of a joke as the emissions argument. Um, You know, somewhere between 92 and 98% of the water attributed to raising, you know, beef cattle is water that has fallen from the sky and irrigated land with natural natural land with natural glowing plants on it um to assign that to say that it's inefficient is ridiculous <clears throat> and further any water that is drawn by cattle from a waterway or an aquifer is then cycled into the system and redistributed across the land which actually is a benefit to the land so again water is Total bullshit. Also, rice takes twice as much water. You know, a pound of rice takes twice as much water as a pound of beef. Um, you know, globally, 30% of groundwater is for rice, 12% for wheat, and so on and so forth. So, water, absolute evil eye, bear claw <clears throat> when it comes to beef. And then I think the other big thing I hear, and tell me if there's anything I'm missing, is okay, fine, you're right. Regenerative is way better, but here's my final gotcha. There's just not the land to support it. It can't, you know, scale. Take economics and distribution and supply chains aside. There's just not a land base available to convert to that system that can feed the world. Yeah, you're right. That's a huge one. And I feel like that one's more, I think that one touches on plants and row crops, but it also, it it, it touches a lot on, on meat. And so from like the, from the crop perspective, which... And I think we're all probably getting 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 tired of talking about, but it's also like again, there's this whole plant versus animal thing that we're trying to have to we have to address, and so the conversation's tilted towards plants get a free pass. And I think we're not trying to say plants are evil; we're just saying they shouldn't get a free pass. They have a lot of issues that we should be honest about and factor into our factor into our conversations and our solutions. But um, all plant based systems can be improved you know, through regenerative practices, cover cropping, limiting tilling, practicing the principles of soil health, um, and integrating animals and animals are are an interesting one. So, you know, I think the, let's just say like, if we were going to take the U S population and take the animal, the the beef that we produce and could it, could it even, could that convert to regenerative? So like in the, in the U S you know, best I understand it, we, kill around or slaughter around 40 million head of cattle a year, 29 million of those um, tend to be finished in feedlots. So what's the overwhelming majority? You know, the rest are finished on grass and in pasture. I think it's important to note too, that the majority of beef spends the majority of its life um, in pasture until it goes to a feedlot for the, for the final step. Um, and that's where it's in the feedlots where it really gets, you know, heavy supplementation of grains and stuff. But okay, back to the 29 million cattle finished in, 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 in feedlots, that would be what we would need to figure out how to finish on pasture and grass in the United States. And if we assume, you know, one to two acres per head needed to finish them, um, we can start to do some math based off of acreage available. Um, if we you know take the 90 to 100 million acres of corn 
that's planted in the United States, you know, recognizing that a huge chunk of that is only planted to feed livestock and the remaining chunk of that, like 40% goes to livestock and the rest goes to high fructose corn syrup and ethanol. I don't think we, we're not eating a lot of that. Um, so it's not like substituting food for food. It's substituting bear claw for food. Um, but if we only, you know, take 15 million of that, 15 million acres of that, we can literally finish half of those animals that are in feedlots currently on that land. And we could even produce more food, right? Because we talked about stacking enterprises and not just finishing animals on it, but creating other food. And so there's this abundance. Um, there's also just in the U.S. alone, again, you know, 500 million acres privately owned. That's pasture land suitable for raising livestock, but it's being underutilized at like only a third. Um, so if we just took another 5% of that, um, it more than makes up for all the land that we would need to finish all of the animals currently in feedlots on grass and, and pasture systems. And it doesn't account for the other opportunities to go above and beyond that. Because I would say, you know, we're eating 86% or 84% of the beef we're eating a generation ago. We should be eating like 150%. Like we need to be eating more meat, not less. And so we're going to need more land. And also grass finished animals are slightly smaller because they don't have as much fat maybe 20 to 30% less. So we're going to need to finish a few more of them. And, and so let's just, you know, not just make it even, let's just really stack the deck in our favor. There's another 20 million acres in reserve programs where farmers get paid by the government to leave fields fallow and not produce any kind of food on it. That's not good for the land to not have biology happening and ecosystem services happening. And so, you know, there's an opportunity to improve that land, not by leaving it necessarily fallow, but by allowing it to improve and regenerate the regenerative practices. So, there you go. Another probably 10 million head at two acres ahead. A um, and, and then again, that doesn't even account for the fact that when you begin to improve your management practices and regenerate land, your stocking rates go up. So all of a sudden, what was two acres to finish an animal becomes one acres. And I think there's research out there that shows stocking rates can go up by 30 to 100% when practicing regenerative agriculture. And let's be clear, that it takes time and it's context-based. Some places can do it quickly. Some places it might take five to 10 years. Um, but we get more productive in addition to getting more food. So like, is the land available? There's so much abundance of available land and opportunity. And what I said wasn't about converting all of those things. It was taking fractions of what's available and beginning to make it more productive for the, for the, um, the raising of, of, of livestock and producing food. And then there is all of the other stuff like improving the way we practice regenerative on row crop and creating more food per acre and more nutrition within that food because again we're we're harming people with the current lack of nutrition in our food that our current system is failing us for. So <clears throat> hypothetically speaking, it sounds like we have a really big opportunity to transition existing land, shifting our mindset to moving towards this regenerative system and having a tremendous carrying capacity improvement, but also nourishing people rather than just filling their bellies with empty calories. So like moving from this hypothetical transition, um, I've heard critics, skeptics um, point to like this story about Sri Lanka. Um, as being this example of a nation that, you know, pulled the plug on chemical agriculture uh, that relied on the importation of fertilizer, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides. And when they did that, the entire 
uh, economy, an agricultural economy collapsed. You know, farmers went out of business. Uh, production rates went down like up to 60%, uh, 60% lower yields. Um, you know, obviously like suicide rates went sky high. The country had actually had to import food for the first time in a long time. And so there's like this cautionary tale where it's like, if we change the system, if we move away from this conventional industrial system, what if Sri Lanka repeats itself? So I, I'd just be curious if like, what, like what went wrong there? And like is there a, like glare is, at the camera? Is there a better example? Oh man, so much went went wrong there. Um, well, let's 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 clarify a couple of things too. Like one, Sri Lanka specifically went organic and and basically said overnight stop importing, you know, some of the fertilizers and sides, and you can't spray it. So like we everything we've been talking about and are promoting is regenerative. Organic is not regenerative. Um, you know, regenerative, unlike organic, introduces a lot of practices intent, intended to heal and improve and restore resiliency and organic largely limits the applications of some of these sprays. Um, and then in the case of Sh Sri Lanka, they just mandated it all of a sudden. And so you went from in a system that has been degraded and destroyed and disrupted. So it became reliant on these chemical amendments and then they removed that very tool and it's like you know this is we're talking about biology here to me this is like you know anybody that's ever known anybody dealing with substance abuse you can't always quit cold turkey or it can literally like even just stopping drinking for an alcoholic will kill you if there's not a a, a transition that is that is smooth and guided, and I think maybe you guys even anecdotally can speak firsthand, like what you experienced, and maybe a similar effort to rip the bandaid off too quickly and not recognizing how degraded the land was, and that it wasn't ready, and there needed to be a a smoother transition. Yeah, I uh, I like the alcoholism thing. I always think about it as like when we ripped the cord, pulled the plug, made that immediate shift and transition from, uh, at our, at our ranch, a system that was dependent on the chemical inputs. And then we removed that from the system. The biology was not present. Um, the biology was exhausted. It, it couldn't do the work. And so the way I always thought about it, it's like you had this sedentary, uh, child playing video games all day long, eating hot pockets. And then one day his mother was like, get your ass off the couch and run a marathon. And like, what, what would happen? That's basically what we did to our land. We asked it to run a marathon when it had been just crunching Cheetos and getting thick and the wrong juicy ways. Um, and so we, uh, yeah, I think that system, it doesn't work. And, and in retrospect, we should have gradually reduced our inputs, I think, to have the most success. But it was a shock for us because when we removed those inputs, nothing happened. Literally, you remember? The grass did not grow a millimeter. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's the same thing as when we were talking about stocking rates, you know, it'd be like, oh, okay, well, I'm regenerative now. And so, you know, I changed my mind. So I'm going to put twice as many animals on my land and just assume everything's going to fall into place. Like, no, it doesn't work like that. It's, there's a process. You have to, the conditions have to be right. And practicing these things helps improve the conditions um, over time, but you still have other things you're not even in control of like weather and, you know, so, so many other things that require just a little bit of, of patience and reality. And I think that's where some of those technological solutions, like, Hey, is there a way to 
spray less and be more targeted with it or, or whatever can help support a transition. They're not a destination. They're not a long-term solution, but they might be part of the, the protocol to get you from where you are to where you need to go. But there's a million examples that we could elaborate on that say like, you, you can't just go cold turkey like that in so many instances. And this is, this is, this is one of those. So is there uh, an example um, of a large transition that's occurred so, I mean, it doesn't have to be in the U.S., but globally somewhere where there was a successful transition from that chemical input system to a better, more virtuous system, whether it be organic or regenerative. Maybe within the force of nature supply chain. Do you have an example of that? Because I feel like we've done quite a bit of transitioning. The Sri Lanka example specifically is talking about transitioning cropland. Right. Um, where it's so dependent on inputs. And then suddenly you're moving, like you've created a dependency and an addiction. Got to be more thoughtful about how you make the transition. From a force of nature example perspective, it's we're dealing with animals and meat. And, 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 and um, so I, I, there, there are a lot of examples, but we don't have the same. Again, we can't. Our example would be if we would have tried to, like what wouldn't have worked is if we would have just tried to throw double the animals out there, which I kind of touched on a second ago. But there's a ton of examples of. Um, places that we've worked with managing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres. We've seen this happen with partners that we have in the U.S. Um, and we've seen this happen with partners that we have internationally um, where they've been able to change their practices and begin pursuing a regenerative path and, and seeing tons of positive benefits from it. And so I think like in the U.S. examples, um, we've been working longer. We only started like it, it, with rumen, well, in the U.S. examples, like we've seen partners that are—I got to be careful because not every partner wants us to talk about them and name them—and so I got to be—I got to be thoughtful about what I say. But it's really cool and exciting stuff that I want to share. So, you know, we have, we have partners that have num a number of ranches that span many dozens to many hundreds of thousands of of, of acres that you know actually had doing really incredible things, but still we're 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 finishing you know, animals in, in, um, on a grain based confinement system. Um, and I've been able to close down the majority of those systems and convert the majority of their supply to pasture finishing and, and grass finishing, um, huge partners and, and huge volumes within that industry. But like, we've been able to make that transition at scale, um, successfully. And then the results haven't just been like, we can do it and produce the meat. The results have been, um, they're less reliant on external inputs. Their land is benefiting from it. Um, you know, bird species, you guys alone, right? Like your, your bird counts, um, and your biomass and your, the, your, the stories that you have about improving water cycle at Rome ranch. Um, you know, you have a, you're a smaller footprint, but we see similar exciting and profound benefits on larger footprints and, um, all over. Do you believe it? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds too good to be true. It's not. Um, you know, these are examples of force of nature driving massive, large scale change too. But I always go back to, to, to just like um, that Northeast province or that state in India uh, as, as a really good example. You know, they decided they, they were going to transition their whole industrial chemical based um agricultural system to an organic system. And so we're not talking like small scale, this is 66, 
thousand farms in India. This entire region made the transition and it didn't happen overnight. I think it happened in like 10 years. And what, what occurred was the government slowly weaned off the subsidies of the inputs for the fertilizers. So every year, something like it got 10% closer to the actual cost of the fertilizer that farmers had to pay. Governments put in place these educational centers that taught farmers how to compost, how to cycle manure as nutrients. The colleges in India started teaching organic agriculture. And then you had this shift over 10 years where they completely weaned themselves off. And now that entire state... Uh, it's outlawed, it's banned to import any kind of nutrient for plant production. So that's phenomenal. Um, that's cool. I think that the the story that we're telling is that it it takes time and that's contextual, that's regional. And again, that's just like, uh, that's, that's our, um, that's just cooperating with mother nature. Yeah. And not to get confusing, but the example you just described exceeds the standard for organic as as the as it is legally defined here in, in the United States. Which it, it, it leans more towards regenerative than organic. And those are different things. Yep. But the points are all the same. So I guess it's this isn't just hypothetical, but it, we're giving actual examples. Yeah. I mean. I guess one of the biggest questions I have or that I would assume that people listening would have is like, well, if there's clear evidence that this is better, it's better for the animals, better for the land, uh, better for every everything. Why are more people not doing it? Like what's stopping people from transitioning aside from that's going to take longer to be successful at it? Yeah, I think that's a com- complex question with a lot of uh, unique variables that just, you know, like are so um, specific to different families, different regions. But ultimately, if I really try to just break this down to what is the biggest limitation in uh, regenerative supply chains, growing more people transitioning, it's really just, it needs to be a shift, not in, like the question isn't like, how much land do we have? We already addressed that. We have enough land. It's not like, uh, is this better for all the stakeholders? We've already addressed that. But really what has to happen, it's the human mindset needs to shift. That's the last, but also the greatest obstacle, the greatest barrier to overcome is how we think. And to take a moment to step back, to look at ourselves in the mirror, to question our own beliefs, to question what we have been taught, to question what we have been doing our whole lives and have that opportunity, that moment for rebirth and to think about doing things differently. I, I, th- I feel like that's the biggest struggle and the challenge that we're facing. Yeah, I, I actually totally agree with that. Um, I think you covered you, that was like a really broad and it covered a, a lot. But I think, you know, you touched on it when you when you said what we've been conditioned to believe and we have to have the opportunity. Like, I think people are being lied to and misled. I think there's a lot of myths and lies being promoted at massive scale that are causing people to be confused. I think there's a lot of, in fact, not a lot of the overwhelming majority of lobby dollars that goes to regulation, that goes to policy that leads to and is a key driver for the existing food system has a vested interest in again in the in the status quo and it makes it everything you just said needs to happen but it's really difficult for that to happen if conversations are aren't allowed or are silenced or there's noise thrown out to confuse and and mislead and misdirect and so you know I think that at some point 
we need our captured system to start representing our best interests and the, and the desires and the will of the people so that everything you just laid out can happen. We, uh, I don't want to skip over this point because I think it's so important because we're talking about like, again, how do you feel to feed a growing population? And I don't think we're being true to ourselves or being accountable if we're not, if we don't touch on food waste as a significant topic. So, um, I don't know when I think about food waste, I I think about like, you know, the typical person putting something in the refrigerator, going in molt. And when I say the typical, I think about our family, honestly, you know, like the strawberries sitting in the refrigerator for too long and then getting moldy and you just have to put them in the compost pile or whatever. But, um, I think, I don't know if it's, I guess there's a differentiation between, uh, food that goes into a compost pile and is recycling back into a nutrient cycle versus food. That, I wouldn't call that food waste. That's not food waste to to me. I mean, it's it's upcycling. Yeah, it's 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 an additional expense at the grocery store. But um, I guess food waste would be like throwing it in the trash and it being stuck in a plastic bag. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or not, and and it produces methane. Or not. Yeah. Um, and then historically, how would that have looked? You know. Um, you know, there would have been less waste because there, you know, we, I, I think the U.S. is the worst offender in food waste. I think we've, again, through commodification, cheapened our food to the extent where people don't see the value that it represents and it's easy to discard it and take it for granted and be wasteful with it. Well, um, there, there is an excess surplus of food in the United States. There's an excess surplus. I mean, we, we produce one and a half times the amount of food globally than we need. Globally, there's an excess of food. U.S. Is, has the most excess and the most waste. And we're, we also in the U.S. used to be, what do we always say? You know, founding fathers, majority, and then, and then 60% farmers a century later, and 30% a century later, and then single digits now. Um, you know, we would have been, and, and we wouldn't have been growing one thing. We would have been having a, a, a almost a closed loop system, multi-species growing plants and animals. And we wouldn't be just taking our scraps and composting and we'd be feeding chickens and feeding uh, pigs and monogastrics. And we'd be, we'd be recycling and upcycling those, that, that waste. But just for the scale and, 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 and for the, the, the conversation at hand, you know, some, again, lot, most of the food comes from row crop systems or are supported by, by row crop systems. You know, upwards of 30 to 40% of crops are lost before harvest. Yeah. Um, so there's a huge amount of waste there and assist that, that stat doesn't exist with meat. We don't lose that many um, before harvest, not, not to mention we don't require all those inputs and all the rest of the stuff and inefficiencies. Um, and then another quarter is lost due to waste. So more than half the food we grow doesn't feed anyone. Um, and then that, that quarter that goes to waste, again, is going into generally going into landfills and causing its own set of negative externalities and problems. Um, fortunately, thank God, meat food waste tends to be lower. It's only 20%. Um, only, you know, it's like only 20% of like the sentient lives that we should respect and pay homage to and show reverence for gets thrown into a garbage can. It's a terrible reality. It's, it's too much. And if you look at kind of going back to what we were talking about, like the growing population, I said, you know, it grew like, I think something like 1% or 2% a year since like 1950s. And so we went from 2 billion to 8 billion people. It's only projected to grow 0.1% a year going, going forward and then plateau and maybe even decline outside of Africa. And so, 
um, the, the reality is how much more food do we need to produce today for a 25% increase in population? Well, if we're already growing 150% of the food we need, probably already have enough to support a 25% increase in the population. And like Taylor said, there's other things that we can do from a mindset perspective and so on um, to shift our attitudes towards being wasteful with food. But there are still things that we can do to be more productive and produce even more food than we currently are. If we truly needed it, our food systems have so much more potential than they're being leveraged for. And, you know, what is feeding? You know, I think we have a misconception around what it is to eat. You know, are we just like trying to fill our bellies with empty calories that cause us harm? Or are we trying to nourish the population? Because the population as it stands today, and similarly, the population that is growing is really sick. And when we started this green revolution, feed a growing population, battle cry, um, you know, famine was an issue, kind of touched on that a little bit. I question the degree to which it was an issue at that time, but it was, it was an issue. Now it, it's reversed. Famine's not just the issue, but obesity is the issue. And, and simultaneous to obesity and all of the health consequences of that, we have massive nutritional deficiency. So the, the food that the system is producing is failing the population. So we have to, we, you know, we have to see some changes. I, I don't think that we need to find a way to like this idea of like feeding a growing population, like, oh my God, we have to quadruple our output of food or we're all, you know, going to die. It's like, no, we don't have to really add that much more output. We just need to create a better output with what we have and more can come as a result of that. The whole idea of there being more overweight people in the world, so more people with obesity than starvation is mind blowing because that's not what you... Maybe think about the, the interesting juxtaposition is that a long, like a long time ago, it used to be a sign of status and wealth to be overweight. You guys remember that? Like all the yeah. kings Do and I queens. You guys remember that back in the day? <laughs> yeah. uh, and and now it's like the opposite, where it's the people who are in the greatest amount of poverty who have the lowest amount of resources. Those tend to be the communities that are the most overweight. And so again, it's like, what quality of food are they getting? Yeah, gro gr to, to, to be clear too, growth, population growth is coming from developing countries. Um, and two thirds of the population in developing countries are obese. It's like 600 million people globally, which is oh, wow. the, the facts behind the point that you just made. Um, okay. So let's just, if we can just break this down. You know, like as simple as you can or not. I don't care if it's simple, but like just go back to this original premise, this original question that this curiosity that created this conversation, which is, you know, just want to give each of you an opportunity to kind of bring it home. So, Robbie, can we feed a growing population with meat or with a regenerative system? The one word answer is yes. It's pretty simple. Do I have permission for more? Yeah. Are we recapping or are, are we, we just recapping? Yes. And anything that I feel like is just speaking to you that you need to reemphasize, really want to leave listeners with. Yeah, I think I think you, you nailed it earlier ago or a moment ago about mindset. You know, I think we need to question and challenge 
what we're being told are, are facts and understand and appreciate that reductionism has a lot of faults and the nuance matters. Um, the population's growing, not in, in, in the need to feed that population isn't as it's presented. Um, how we're currently feeding the world is failing. It's failing the population. It's not sustainable. It won't be able to feed the existing population, let alone a growing one. And if we continue down this, this path, um, you know, we're going to be going, the population will certainly not be, be growing. It will be declining because of, because of famine and starvation. So there has to be an alternative that not only feeds the existing population, but nourishes it and can feed any potential growth in that population. And the only viable long-term alternative to that is regenerative because it is a system that heals all the damage done by the status quo um, and thus allows us to produce food. And that solves the reality that you know, we're actually nourishing the population in the process of giving them calories and healing them. My turn? Yeah, unless you want to kill more time and I can go. No, I mean, I obviously I can't uh, emphasize as much as what Robbie said. I feel like one of the most important parts of this is just that it has to happen at a global scale, like that we can't feed a growing population from within the United States. I'm sure we could, um, and I'm sure that's what we've been doing. But I, I don't think it's the responsibility of one country to be feeding the entire world. I think that we have a sick world, like our world is sick, like our land is degraded. Every single country needs to be contributing to a um, a more regenerative system um, in order for it to actually function like an ecosystem because the world is its own ecosystem. I love it. My uh, parting message would be that meat is not the villain. It should have never been the villain. It's been vilified, but separating ourselves from nature. That's really, I think, where we went wrong as a civilization to believe that we could um, use our intelligence to create something better than the design of nature. And so with that, like, go kiss a cow, go kiss love a cow. on a goat, go pet a sheep, don't milk a bison, but really show reverence and respect and honor for the these sentient regenerative beings that are more complex than us with our simple one chambered stomachs. They have four stomachs. That's amazing. So we're like somewhere between a, a goat and a amoeba as far as the complexity of our digestive system. Just really like sit back and be in awe of that. Uh, and then what else? Um, I, I would also say if people could stop questioning, stop saying this idea of eating less meat. Should we be eating less meat to save the planet, to grow population? What if we just question, reframe the whole question? I think back to your original idea, like, should we, should we be consuming as much industrialized processed grains and monocultures mm -hmm. to save the world and to feed a growing population? Because if we really just restructure the question, at least you can kind of ponder at the first part. But the second part, once you are connected with the land, you're like, hell no. We cannot feed a growing civilization. We cannot save the planet with doubling down on industrial plant-based agriculture. Or at least we should not be. Yeah. Not, not only are cows not the, 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 the problem, but we should be eating more cows. Like Chick-fil-A got it wrong. Eat more beef. Totally eat more beef. Eat more chicken. Uh, That's what Chick-fil-A said. I know. They got it wrong. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're, they're, eat way less chicken and pay more for it. Um, and 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 then and then you inspired me to add um, that carbon is is not the the villain either. Carbon's not our enemy. Everybody listening to this is carbon. Everything biological is carbon. Um, stop the self hate. Um, the system 
is the problem. I think that what's what we've been trying to highlight today is like, what's the existing system and what's the alternative system? Um, let's address the real issue at its root and not allow ourselves to be victims of, you know, the, these lies and, and, and misleading fake news facts um, that are working against our interests. Since we invented a new word in this podcast, what was that one that you created? Then, okay. Extinctionist? Extinctionism. I did not invent uh, that. I, let's invent, sure another, let's invent another term to Robbie's point, which we'll call it carbon derangement syndrome. Okay. Becoming <laughs> just singularly focused on carbon. There's a lot of those people. Yeah. All right, friends and lovers. Which one? <laughs> Lover friend. Yeah, not plural. <laughs> For clarity. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, okay, let's just go onward into the world and do good things. Until next time. Adios. Adios. Ciao. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. That was a fun conversation that I got to have with two of my most favorite people on planet Earth. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you, Katie. You guys bring a lot of uh, joy to my life and fill my heart with hope. And I hope your heart is now filled with a little bit more hope. And I hope that you feel more inspired than ever to be vocal and to shut it down the next time you hear someone make some mindless statements such as we need to eat less meat and more vegetables or bugs to save the planet or to feed a growing population so instead of doing a roundhouse or an uppercut on that individual like I know you want to just Find your center and share the link to this podcast and have them listen to it. And hopefully it expands their mind and changes their life as well as connects them to the greatest potential of co-creating with Mother Nature. Lastly, I want to encourage you to head over to the sponsor of this podcast's website. That's forceofnature.com and align with your values. If you are a sovereign individual who wishes to not live in a future in which global technocrats or global governments force mandates upon which you have to eat beans for the rest of your life for every meal of the day and maybe a little dessert of bugs. Well, vote with your dollars to support a system which is more virtuous. Force of nature is leading the charge. We're You're a part of the herd. We are aligning and accelerating this mission, this vision of hope and painting the future in which we all want to see and celebrate together. So again, head over to forceofnature.com, load up on bison, beef, venison, elk, wild boar, all the gifts of the animal kingdom to nourish your body, to nourish the land and to nourish your soul. Until next time, farewell friends. <laughs>